Good morning, church. Welcome to West Hills. My name is uh, Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's really good to have you with us. Um, especially if you're newer, we want to welcome you. We want to thank you for being here and worshiping with us. We'd love to uh, connect with you, get you connected here with the different ministries we have going on at West Hills. Um, so if you want to find one of those new to West Hills cards in the, in the chair back in front of you, we'd love to just get a, uh, uh, an idea of, of your contact info, just an email is enough, and we will uh, be able to follow up. And thank you for being here. Um, you can drop that at the info bar just out these double doors on your way out. And uh, like I said, we'd love to get you connected here at West Hills and give you an idea of what we've got going on. One of the things we have going on coming up here soon is um, Christmas Eve. Of course, Christmas Eve is one of our uh, favorite times of the year as a church family together. Um, we're going to be doing not one, not two, but two, three um, Christmas Eve services. That's the plan uh, this, this year um, with capacity limits. We'll see what kind of signups we get, um, but we, uh, we expect those. It's always a very popular service with out-of-town family and friends and, and just visitors, um, people who may not otherwise attend church, but they will on Christmas Eve. It's it's tradition, for better or worse, and so we want to take advantage of that. We want to invite you to, to take advantage of that and invite people. So if you have people you know, in your lives, friends, family, coworkers, neighbors who, um, who don't know the Lord especially and who uh, might be primed to at least come back to church, um, church they were raised in and walked away from on, on Christmas and Easter, these are prime times for us to invite, and so please reach out. Pastor Tad's got a, a shareable social media graphic that you should be seeing this next week. We'll have the sign-up going out and the email blast this week, and you can, um, you can sign up for Christmas Eve. Um, this morning, we're back in our Advent series. Wake up, turn off the alarm, disable the backup alarm in case I overslept the first one. Go potty, turn the shower on, brush my teeth while the shower warms up, shower, dry off, get dressed, put my contact lenses in, shave, lotion, deodorant, cologne, Q-tip, ears, tiptoe into the living room without squeaking the floors too much, put the dog's shot collar on, let her outside, fill her food and water bowls, put her medicine and some cheese, toss out yesterday's coffee filter, rinse out the coffee pot, fill up the coffee pot, scoop the coffee, start the maker, grab my Bible, sit on the couch, pray over the day, let the dog back in, give her the cheese, pour the coffee, sit back down, open my Bible, and see how much I can read before Elijah wakes up and wakes Celery and Polly up, and then we're into breakfast and family devotionals starting the day. Those are more or less the first 45 minutes to an hour of, of my day, virtually every day, for as long as I can remember, and uh, I would guess that if I gave you the, the microphone to share your morning ritual, um, it would be equally repetitious and uniform and monotonous. <clears throat> That's what we're talking about this morning. Monotony, lacking in variety, tediously unvarying. By the time you die, you will spend roughly 100 days of your life almost one-third of an entire year brushing your teeth. You will spend about 27 years asleep. 
Our lives on the whole are utterly boring, aren't they? I mean, take the, the person at West Hills with the most interesting life right now, Steve Liang is head of infectious diseases at WashU. He has understandably been joining us virtually for the past nine months. But if I could be a fly on the wall throughout Steve's work day, I bet it's fascinating for maybe a quarter of the day, like maybe five or six hours. It's riveting, and I bet the vast majority of his time is spent on paperwork and filing reports, updating spreadsheets, on the phone, coordinating with, with other local hospitals, in his car, commuting to and from the hospital. You will, if you're an average American, you'll spend roughly a year of your life in your car, commuting to and from work. Our lives, for even the most interesting among us, are for the most part thoroughly mundane. And for many of us, they only got more monotonous this spring with COVID, the pandemic, the quarantine, all of, all of a sudden those 45 minutes that you spend, used to spend in the car every day commuting to and from work seem like the highlight of the day, right? That was the highlight of the old glory days because at least it was something different to break up the monotony. Some of our boring lives have barely changed at all. My wife, God love her, she is a stay-at-home mom. And uh, I'll just say this, I think stay-at-home moms are the real heroes. You know, Frontline front healthcare workers, absolutely. You know, we appreciate y'all. I cannot even imagine what you guys are dealing with day in and day out right now. God bless you. We pray for you. But I would just say, for me, my personality, temperament, give me, given the choice, I will absolutely take frontline health, uh, front care working over stay-at-home mom any day of the week. I, I ask my wife every day when I get home, how was your day? Literally every day, the answer is the same. My day was the same. By the time I get done with one load of laundry, it's time to start the next one. By the time I unload the dishwasher, it's time to reload it. Change one dirty diaper, he poops again. And then I've got the nerve, the center that I am, to complain that I had to spend the whole day checking my email and catching up. Checking her email is the highlight of my wife's day. Those are 10 or 15 minutes she gets to escape the laundry and the dishwasher and the diapers for just a moment for something new, a new email, right? My wife is my hero. Now, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Last week, we started a four-part Advent sermon series entitled The Weary World Rejoices, in which we're examining the various dimensions of weariness, what makes us weary in order that we might better understand not only the weary world into which Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, but so that we can better understand the weary world that we're all living through today as we trudge on in exile, awaiting Christ's return and the final consummation of all of history. Last week we discussed waiting. Waiting makes us weary. God's people waited 2,000 years from the time of God's promise to Abram for their Messiah, and we've been waiting 2,000 years since then for his return. And at times, it gets tiring. Waiting makes us weary. And, and we be begin to feel impatiently dissatisfied as weariness is defined. And all the more so when the wait becomes monotonous, right? 
monotony is actually itself defined as wearisome uniformity or lack of variety. Doing the same thing all day, every day is exhausting, isn't it? And if we're honest, <clears throat> we're all still pretty, pretty spoiled. We've got it good. None of us are working in the sweatshops in China, right? Very few West Hillians that I, I'm aware of are, are working for such soulless companies as Inatech from the movie Office Space, if you've seen that. As a pastor, of course, I can't recommend that you watch that movie. I watched it before I was saved, so I can talk about it. <clears throat> but I think of poor Peter, you know, who was cooped up in his little tiny cubicle all day, every day, beside the receptionist who's on her phone on repeat. Corporal accounts, corporate accounts payable, Mina speaking, just a moment. If you've seen the movie, corporate accounts payable, Mita speaking, just a moment. Corporate accounts payable, it just over and over and over again. This is the stuff of real life, right? And just like no one knew waiting better than the Jewish people, as we saw last week, no one knew monotony better either. That was actually one of Jesus' primary critiques of first century Judaism when he showed up on the scene, was that it had, its worship had become mindless, rote, empty, religious ritualism. We're going to see this morning there's a place for monotony and repetition, but it's not in our worship. Worship is not supposed to be monotonous, and yet we're also, as I said, we're going to see there, there, there's, we're called as, as believers to live this life of balance between the extraordinary and the very ordinary, between the momentous and the mundane. And I think of uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, made, made famous by the birds, to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap. And according to Scripture, there is a time for newness and excitement. There's also a time to be banal and perhaps even boring. So we're going to examine three contrasting pairs of biblical truths this morning, this tension and this life of balance that we're called to live as, as Christians. Speaking of the ordinary, this, this may not be the most profound sermon you've ever heard, but I pray it will be a blessing and an encouragement to someone this morning, to some stay-at-home mom, you know, to, to someone perhaps listening to this on, on Monday morning online uh, uh, after the fact in your office while you're filling out your TPS reports. Uh, ordinarily, I would ask you at this point to stand for the reading of God's Word, but uh, because ordinarily we, we camp out in just one passage of Scripture for the bulk of our morning, but appropriately, I think, given the topic, we're actually going to mix things up a little today, and we're going to bounce around and uh, check out a, a variety of passages to see what God's Word has to teach us about this idea of monotony. And so uh, we're just going to pray, and we're going to dive right in together. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would quiet our hearts in the busyness and the monotony of life. Whatever you know, cycles of, of thinking and <clears throat> that we have going on in our, in our minds and our hearts right now, we pray that you would break through our own monotony even now, our own uh, routines of, and, and, and endless sort of mindless um, wheel spinning and that you would quiet our hearts and quiet our minds to hear from you in a new way that our worship 
that might be new. We might uncover something new, even in your, your old, ancient, timeless, good word, eternal word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that it's trustworthy, and that we can voluntarily submit ourselves, surrender ourselves under your authority now and trust the good plans and purposes you have for our life to use your word for our good. And we ask that you do that now. We ask that you open hearts, minds, and eyes and ears to experience you and see and hear you in new ways, Father, that, um, that you might call a sinner for the first time to yourself, that you might uh, call a sinner who's walked with you for a long time and is still a sinner uh, to repentance and uh, to a new way of relationship with you. And we pray all this for your glory, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Point number one, so routines are good, but they can become wearisome. Routines are good, but they can become wearisome. We consider Genesis 1, the very beginning, chapter Chapter 1, verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. What does that tell us? Well, I think that tells us that routines are good because they were invented by God. On the fourth day of creation, nonetheless, routines predate humanity. Before we even came on the scene, God was bringing up the sun every morning and bringing up the moon every night to mark signs seasons, days, and years, to give the world order because 1 Corinthians 14, tells us that our God is a God of order. And so he implements rhythms and cycles and patterns. Part of what it means for us to be created in God's image then is that we are rhythmic creatures. We're habitual creatures. God designed us with biological clocks, with circadian rhythms. We're meant to have routines. I love my routines. You might have got, gotten bored as I listed them off for you this morning in the introduction, but I get excited. I love my routines. If you don't love yours, maybe it's time for you to get a new routine. Some folks bristle at the very notion of routine, but there's something deeply wrong with the person who rejects all repetition, with the person for whom everything always has to be fresh and new and different. No two showers can be the same. No two work days can be the same. No two sexual partners. Never eat the same meal twice. Never wear the same sweater twice. That is a broken person. Actually, that was God's curse on Cain. If you remember from Genesis chapter 4, he said you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. We are meant to settle down. We're meant to have routines because God is a God of order. And yet, the flip side of that is that routines can become wearisome. You know, they say that variety is the spice of life. It reminds me of the story of the Israelites when they were wandering through the desert for 40 years after their exodus from Egypt. And, and all they had to eat for weeks, months, Years, you remember that, is, is manna. We hear about it in Numbers chapter 11. It says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. 
We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now listen, we are often quick to beat up on the ancient Israelites. You think, this was bread from heaven. What are you complaining about? God was supernaturally raining down this, this manna every day to keep his people from starvation, the nerve of them to complain. But in their defense, look at how Scripture itself describes the stuff. It goes on to say, now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bedelium. I've never heard of bedelium, but I, I looked it up. You can Google a picture for yourself. It looks disgusting. That's why they called it manna. The Hebrew literally translates, what is it? And I don't know if you've tasted coriander seed lately. I, I took one for the team last night in preparation for the sermon because I, I didn't think I'd ever just tasted it straight. It does not taste good. And uh, so the, the Israelites, they did what they could. They gathered it, they ground it in hand mills and beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it after that was like the taste of wafers baked with oil. We hear that when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And so I'm envisioning like these wafers that we've been using um, with, with COVID. I'm not talking about the, the pre-COVID delicious Trader Joe's crackers. I'm talking about the, uh, the COVID uh, tasteless you know, wafers we're using. Imagine collecting those wet every morning with the dew, right? And, and you're, you're grinding it, you're boiling it. All I'm saying is, we need to cut the Israelites a little slack, right? I mean, we, you and I, we, we complain about far less than having to eat that every day for months on end, don't we? Listen, God could rain down my favorite food. He could, he could send down free Carabas chicken Brian, you know, every day. And by the third day, I'm going to be like, God, could I have, maybe like have a side of pasta with that? Maybe send down a dessert too. I'd like to end my meals with a little something sweet. Because variety is the spice of life. And in the same way that we're built for routines, the Bible says we also need variety. Monotony is, is, is not good unchecked. You just listen to how King Solomon, the richest, wisest man in the history of the world, like if anyone could have escaped the weariness of monotony, it was this guy. Listen to Solomon's philosophical musings on the meaning of life. He says, meaningless meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's a rather bleak start. And he goes on, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Solomon's going to remind us in chapter 3, you can work as hard as you want, you can make as much money as you want, and you are still going to die like a dog. He says, man is no better than the beast because we all just die. Save for Jesus. This was a thousand years before Jesus, right? generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises, the wind blows to the south and to the north, around and around the wind goes, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow, where they begin, uh, uh, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. It says we even see it in, in nature, weariness. A man cannot even utter it, can't even conceptualize Solomon observes these same patterns in nature that, that Genesis 1 talked about. 
But his take on it is, man, what's the point? The sun comes up, it goes down, it comes up, it goes down. What, what, to what end? It's meaningless. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. <clears throat> is there a thing of which it can be said, see, this is something new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to be amongst those who come after us. Not only are you going to die, but you're going to be forgotten forever by future generations. And so he concludes, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Boy, how is that for a feel-good message this morning? That is not exactly the Psalms of Hope that we just got done studying. I would love to hear Joel Austin's commentary on this passage. Like from the author of Your Best Life Now, Think Better, Live Better, and Empty Out the Negative comes the new, soon-to-be, worse seller, Life is Meaningless. And Solomon is experiencing such existential angst in large part because he feels like there's no way of escaping life's monotony. But here's what G.K. Chesterton, famous 20th century Christian theologian, here's his take on it. I love this. I think it's really convicting. He says, Chesterton says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. Children always say, do it again, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never grown tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, but our Father is younger than we. Boy, that is good. And could it be, friends, that perhaps our inability to see God in our daily monotony has less to do with the nature of our task and more to do with the effects of sin on our childlike joy. That's what Andre Yi, Pastor Andre Yi, comments on, on this. He says, uh, he goes on to say, here's the challenge we face. How do we approach the monotony of our lives with a view that is glorifying to God and satisfying to our souls? How do we glorify God when we're cleaning out our email inbox or filing paperwork? We are called to shape the world we live in, to bring order to it. That's Genesis 2. God put man in the garden to work it, to cultivate it. And in the modern world, this may look and feel like organizing paperwork, filing reports, cleaning out our desk. When we carry out these monotonous tasks with joy, we exercise order in a world rendered disorderly by sin, and we reflect the faithfulness of our Father. That's just a good practical reminder for monotonous creatures like us today. 
Point number two. And let's make this even more explicitly spiritual now. Let's, let's turn this inward to the spiritual. Some repetition is important, but our worship must remain fresh. Repetition is important, but worship's got to be fresh. Look with me at Jeremiah 6, verse 16. The prophet Jeremiah warned God's people, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So there's a reason that that path is carved out in that landscape because generation after generation after generation before you has repeatedly trod that exact same path because it's a tried and trusty path. You deviate from that path at your own peril. And sometimes I wonder how much of Israel's moral failings in the Old Testament their perpetual tendency to forget about God, to fall back into idolatry, how much of it was really just the result of boredom? Like, we, we want a new path. We're tired of the old paths. Yahweh is so 15th century B.C. Baal, he's so hot right now. The temple in Jerusalem, man, that's boring. They go there every year. You've got to check out these new high places up in the hills, this new Asherah pole, this new golden calf. And my question for us today is, are we any different? How many Christians today, how many churches today have forsaken the ancient paths? For 2,000 years, Christians have devoted themselves to God's word and to prayer. But today, so much of American Christianity is all surfeits and no substance. We live, we live in the information age with endless resources for free at our fingertips whenever we want it, and yet biblical illiteracy in this country is at an all-time high. We don't want to be one of those churches, West Hills. And that's why I am excited to announce to you this morning a new ministry that we're going to be rolling out in 2021 in January. I say it's new but it's old. It's 2,000 years old. It's as old as God's people gathering in small groups to study his word together and pray together, share life together. That's a big part of what our life groups are aimed at doing here at West Hills, but um, with a few key differences. For one thing, there's just only so much depth I think you can go into, uh, both in your discussion of scripture and in the personal details of your life when you're, when you're meeting with a co-ed mixed group of 10 or 12 people. The other thing is that some of our life groups, understandably, diversify their study together. Some of our life groups will read through Tim Keller's you know, book on prayer or you know, watch through Francis's Chan, Francis Chan's uh, sermon series on marriage, on Right Now Media. These are all good things. They even further unpack my sermons from, from Sundays at Life Group. These are all good things, but listen, there is no substitute in the Christian's life for personal, direct time spent with the Lord in his word and in prayer. There's no substitute for that. 
And speaking of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says there, uh, chapter 12, of making many books, there is no end. Man, there are a lot, a ton of great Christian books out there. You, 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 can, you can devote yourself for the rest of your life to just reading the Christian classics and never get to the end of it. But there's only one that's really stood the test of time, friends. Like when the, when the grass withers and the flowers fade, there's only one book that's still going to remain. We want to get you in that book as a church. And so if you're on our email list, if you don't get our emails, you can give us your contact info so we can get you plugged in here. You should be getting an email in the next week or so inviting you, starting in January, to join in a discipleship group. If you're looking for that kind of community, that accountability, that commitment to personal Bible study and prayer, they're going to take a lot of different forms. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Some of y'all in your, in your 20s and 30s been excited to have you come in to church now. You might want to get connected with other 20 and 30-year-olds. That's great. Some of you might want to be mentored by a 60 or 70-year-old, someone, you know, an empty nester, someone your parents' age who's willing to invest in you and share from their wisdom and their experience that they've gained from walking those ancient paths for twice as long as you have. That's, that's beautiful. I think it's a win-win either way. Like we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to get you into this kind of a, a life-giving discipleship group, get you in God's word and prayer and community and accountability with, with other believers. Some, uh, some life groups, you know, some, some people will say, well, I'm, an, I'm in a life group, that's enough. Some people will say, um, you know, I, I see value in both of these things. Some life groups may decide to start alternating weeks between meeting as a mixed group and, uh, and then alternating weeks, meeting as, as a group of guys and a group of girls to, to go, go deeper in these ways. I hope that at least some of our discipleship groups include non-West Hillians. Like I hope you steal this idea and, you, and the resources I'll, I'll give you, and I hope you invite unchurched moms in your book club, unchurched, uh, you know, non-believers from your, your, your ultimate Frisbee league. Invite them to read through Scripture and pray with you each week. Man, that would be so exciting. That, that is great commission type stuff. That's Matthew 28 stuff. That is disciples making disciples, like we say we want to do every Sunday here at West Hills. We have a handful of folks here who've been doing this more or less for the last two years now. We've been reading through, uh, we read through the New Testament in 2019, the Old Testament in 2020. It's a great year to read through the Old Testament, by the way. 2020 was a very Old Testament kind of year. Some of y'all might be wondering, what's next? Like, I just got done reading through the Bible these past two years. What's next? And here's where I want to pull in the next passage you see there, Philippians 3.1, where the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Then he goes on to remind them again of the danger of false teachers, the importance of enduring through, through hardship, the centrality of the gospel, the same things. It's safe to be reminded of the same things over and over and over again of the gospel. When we're reading through the Bible over and over and over again, you start it, and you just, if you get all the way through, you just restart it. 
Repetition can be a really good thing, a vital, important thing in the life of a Christian. Because as long as sin still lives inside of us, this side of eternity, we are going to struggle with gospel amnesia. That's what Paul Tripp calls it. We are so forgetful of who God is, of who we are, of what Jesus has done for us. And we, so we tend to live as functional atheists. And that's why we need the ancient paths. We need the, the, the right habits, the right routines, the spiritual disciplines that we just got done teaching through in one of our Sunday school classes at 1045. I'll just quickly mention one other for you, corporate worship. Right, corporate worship is, a, is an ancient path. It's a habit, a discipline, a routine that is worth repeating. I'm preaching to the choir because you're here this morning. Hebrews 10:25. do not neglect to meet together even if that means virtually for some of you. Some of you are joining us virtually. We miss y'all. But, but I, you know, we hope that Wesleyans are not neglecting to meet with one another. We had 112 folks in attendance last week in person. 19 joined us online. We had 118 in person the week before. 12 people joined us online. It's two weeks in a row now, 130 people out of almost 300 in our directory as a church. That's not good. The problem is, by definition, like I said, if you're hearing me raise this as an issue for us to be concerned about, you're not one of the people that I'm concerned about, right? So I guess what I'm saying is some of your brothers and sisters' church need a call from someone other than their pastor this week, checking in on them, like, hey, how are you doing? We've been missing you. Like, have you been able to stay connected with the ancient paths? Even virtually, even if, even if you're not returned in person yet, like they, they need to hear from us. This is what we do for one another as a church. That's accountability. That's what a spiritual family does. And yet, even as we recognize that repetition is important, we have to realize that our worship needs to stay fresh. Again, that was a big part of Jesus' beef with the Pharisees, the first century Jewish leaders. He told them, Mark 7, he said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He said in Matthew 23, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but it's just an empty ritual. You're not offering your hearts to the Lord in worship. And Jesus instructed his followers in Matthew 6, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. There was this, this thought in certain forms of first century Roman pagan worship, this, this idea that mindless repetition of certain magic words and phrases might coerce the gods into listening and responding to your petitions. Jesus said that's not how God works. God is not your magic genie. He can't be manipulated, and he doesn't require some sort of secret password before he'll listen to you. He's your heavenly father. He loves you. He wants to hear from you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to hear from your heart. And if we can just get practical again and personal again for a, a moment, some of us, some of you still, still pray in the old King James English. I don't know why. The these and the thous don't like trigger, you know, God to listen to you. God is omnilingual. You, you know that, right? Like, yes, we, we approach God with a healthy fear and awe and reverence. God is not your BFF. 
And yet Jesus specifically taught us to pray our Father, Abba. That gets personal. God wants a personal relationship. That's what worship is, a relationship with the living God. That also means that just like we can get stuck in a rut in our human relationships, your marriage can become monotonous, mundane. You, you can get stuck in a rut in your relationship with God too. And that's what Jesus was pointing out to the Pharisees. That's what the prophet Hosea pointed out to their forefathers. God had said, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, God had instituted the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament law as a means of the people repairing relationship you know, between God and, and sinful humanity. But his people had become so acclimated to their own sins, so accustomed to making the same sacrifices over and over and over again in order to be forgiven and restored, that even something as sacred as taking a life, that's, that's the, the whole idea behind sacrifice. It's like it's supposed to be sacred. You're taking a life, slitting the throat of your favorite pet goat. It had become just empty ritual to them. And that was the state of Jewish worship in the first century when Jesus showed up on the scene. And the book of Hebrews describes it for us. It says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly, monotonously, mindlessly, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This was monotonous religion to the extreme. Just imagine if you had to sacrifice an animal every time you sinned. We're talking a lot of dead animals. The, the history records you know, rec record accounts of people coming into Jerusalem. You could smell and hear the, the temple from literally miles away. We're talking lots of dead animals. But, but, what's the cure for monotonous empty, ritualistic religion. Hebrews says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the cure for monotonous worship. Not as I thought when I prayed that sinner's prayer when I was eight years old because you can just pray this magic prayer and then never have to think about him any, anymore. But because when you really come to understand who Jesus is, when you really understand who you are, your sin, when you really understand what he's done for you to reconcile you to your heavenly father, you could spend all day, every day, thinking about him, meditating on him, worshiping him and still not even come close to exhausting the attention and the worship and the praise that we owe him. It'll never become monotonous. How could it? Right? How could it when you realize that by a single offering he has perfected for all time, all your sins, past, present, and future, atoned for in an instant, the moment you repent and turn to him in faith, you are now an adopted, beloved, guiltless, free child of God. How could your love for him ever grow tired and cold? How could your worship ever grow boring and stale? 
We ought to be able to read through the same Bible every day, every year, end it and then pick it back up again. God willing, I want to read through the Bible every year of my life, for the rest of my life. Never grow tired of it. May God give me that kind of hunger and thirst for his eternal word. I pray that God gives you that kind of passionate love for him as well, friends. We don't want to be the church like Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. My life group's reading through Ephesus right now, uh, through Revelation right now. Revelation 2. The Ephesians abandoned the love they had at first. For the Lord, their love had grown cold. We don't want to be like the, the church of Laodicea from chapter 3, who are neither cold nor hot, so they get spit out of Jesus' mouth. May we be on fire for the Lord. May we never tire of the gospel and of proclaiming it for all the world to hear. Lastly, and briefly, number three, we can find joy in the mundane. Even as we await God's making all things new. We find joy in the mundane even as we await God's making all things new. Ultimately, even Solomon in all of his existential angst concludes in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Solomon's message is essentially, if you're going to die anyway, you might as well make the most of this life. The New Testament is a little bit more hope-filled than that. Colossians 3, 23, 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Change those diapers for the Lord. Cook that meal. File those TPS reports as unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul goes so far as to say, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10. Apparently, it's even possible to glorify God in the way that you eat and drink, or not glorify Him in the way you eat and drink. I plugged this book a while back. I think it's worth plugging again, picking up, Every Moment Holy. It's a devotional book. Pastor Thad gave me for Christmas last year. It includes devotional reflections, liturgies for meditating while you're doing the laundry. Specific liturgies for while you're cooking, while you're cleaning. Two liturgies for while you're changing diapers. So you know it's good. But here's the thing, friends. Jesus was born in a very ordinary stable. He grew up in a very ordinary town. So ordinary that a lot of his contemporaries doubted that he could even be the Messiah. He came from Nazareth. He worked in a very ordinary job as a carpenter for the vast majority of his life. <clears throat> he even looked ordinary. Prophet Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should esteem him. Jesus was just an average-looking dude. I like to think he was bald. The Bible, Bible never says he had luscious flowing locks, right? Here's the thing. Jesus was in some ways an ordinary guy, and yet he was joy incarnated. He was the perfect embodiment of joy. I think that means if you and I find our joy in our circumstances, in our surroundings, in our upbringing, in our repetitive, monotonous occupations, carpentry, filing TPS reports, in our tired, aging appearance, 
our joy will be fleeting indeed, but if our joy is in the Lord, if his joy is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10, then Jesus' promise from John 15.11 can be yours this morning. He says, my joy will be in you, and your joy will be full. Your joy can be full this morning, even as you wearily await with impatient dissatisfaction Christ's return to make all things new. <clears throat> that's his ultimate promise, right? That's, that's our ultimate hope that we await. Isaiah 43, Revelation 21. I'm going to let you go and read those for yourself. God will make all things new. It's good news. But we can take heart even in the here and now, in the waiting and the longing for final redemption because God has not left us alone. For all of us who are in Christ, we have been sealed with his Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the full possession of it, Ephesians 1, 14. And speaking of breaking the monotony, don't forget what God did when Christ sealed you and saved you he declared you, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new creation. If you're tired of the monotony, if you're tired of the same old, same old, listen to God's promise to you today. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. That's good news. And God is continuing to change you day by day from one degree of glory to the next, making you even more new, sanctifying you for your good for his glory to the praise of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray.